Welcome to Trinity on Tap, the Old Testament, a podcast series brought to you by Trinity College Queensland, presented by Dr. Paul Jones. 4.4, Crisis and Transformation. G'day and welcome back again. Well, we're back on the last one under the heading of crisis now, and we're back to explore what happens to Job. We looked at the introduction briefly in the last podcast, and here we're going to look through the rest of the book. Now, I should probably just acknowledge right here and now that the entire book of Job, which is 42 chapters, cannot be easily summarized in 15 minutes, and I wouldn't want you to think that I think that that's possible. It's not. But this is just a taster. Ideally, I like to spend two hours on the first two chapters of Job because it just teases out so many big issues. But that ain't going to happen in this context. Uh, So let's see what we can learn from a whirlwind tour through this epic tale. Okay, so I made a start on this in the last podcast just by saying that Job is established in the opening verses as a righteous dude who has a certain transactional understanding of God. That is, if he can offer sacrifices at the right time, he can stave off consequences for his kids and keep them safe. Now, in what follows in the opening chapters, chapters 1 and 2, Yahweh has a conversation with someone in the heavenly court whose name makes his job description pretty clear. His name is the accuser. And that's what the Hebrew word Satan means, which we often translate Satan. I won't go into it here, but Satan is not a good translation uh, within the Old Testament context for this, uh, this passage, this introduction to the book of Job. And that's for grammatical reasons, but it's just better to think of the word ha-satan, which means the accuser, as exactly that. It's his job description. It's what he does on the heavenly council. He's the one who makes accusations. So in this conversation, the accuser makes, surprise, surprise, an accusation. And it's a double-edged accusation, partly against Job and partly against God. When God mentions that Job is outstanding in his faithfulness and obedience, the accuser says, says, well, is it any wonder? Of course he obeys you. You give the guy everything. He has three holiday homes, an 80-foot yacht and a private jet. You know, you treat this guy like that, and of course he's going to give his allegiance to you. But... Take those things away and let's see what happens. I bet he'll curse you to your face. So the accuser wants to prove that Job only obeys because there's so much in it for him. And he says that Job doesn't fear God for nothing, but for something, namely loads and loads of wealth, (laughs) lots of money. The flip side of this accusation is that God is actually guilty of sustaining this kind of relationship with Job. If God just keeps giving Job everything that he could possibly want, then what kind of faith does Job really have? In a sense, the accuser is saying that it's God's fault that Job has this transactional understanding of God. Now, you may have noticed, too, that the issue here that's raised is how a person speaks of God when they're suffering. The accuser's specific charge is that Job's speech will change if his circumstances change. Right? So he says, he'll go from praying to you to blaming you. He'll go from blessing you to cursing you. So what happens in these chapters is that Job loses everything. And I mean everything. All that good stuff uh, that was listed in verse 3, gone. 
And when Job appears after all that to be holding up okay, the accuser just ups the ante. He says, okay, sure, you've taken his toys away, but he's still in good health. So Yahweh then permits the accuser to test Job further by taking his health away from him as well. Now, on a personal or pastoral note, I think I should say at this point that I don't think Job is an historical figure, and it seems pretty clear to me that this is not a story that's intended to tell us about how God treats those who worship him, right? That would be a bit depressing. It's a very unique story in the Bible, the only one like it. And when you read it as a whole, you can see that it's it's designed to raise the very kinds of questions that we're discussing here in this podcast. I mean, it's a once upon a time kind of story that begins with five scenes alternating between heaven and earth about a perfect man, like he's blameless, and he suddenly loses absolutely everything. So everything's exaggerated, right, to the max, and he has to find a way to deal with it. I guess what I'm wanting to clarify in saying all that is that This story is presented in a way that it allows us to identify with Job's trials, but at the same time to stay outside his situation enough to ask these kinds of theological questions and consider them. But I don't think that we're supposed to infer from Job's story that every time a person is having a hard time, it's because some sort of test or wager is going on in the heavenly realm. That is not the intention here. Definitely not. Okay, so where to from here? In summary, Job loses everything in chapters 1 and 2, and he's certainly in crisis. But as well as the physical pain and emotional trauma and all that that would go with this, it's clear that Job is experiencing some psychological angst. Now, I'm not trying to project 21st century psychological uh, thought into an ancient text. What I mean is Job has been cut off from his community, from his friends, from his wife. And that causes psychological angst. And we need to enter into this story with full imaginative seriousness. And when we do that, we can imagine that Job is really experiencing some psychological angst here. His wife, his friends, his community, they all appear to have the same beliefs that Job did at the beginning of the book. And they're all rejecting him for that reason. Let's have a look briefly at that, because this is ultimately what I think hurts Job the most. First, fairly early on, if you look at Job's wife, she suggests to him that he stop holding on to his integrity, and she says, just curse God and die. Now, as readers, we we immediately think back to the accuser's prediction that Job would curse God if he lost all his stuff. And the obvious implication, though, in his wife's words is, If Job has been a man of integrity and he's been blessed and he's been healthy and wealthy and rich and so on, but he changes his way of speaking about God, then those things will change too. He will suffer the punishment that he deserves. So she shares that understanding of a transactional God, right? Just curse God and get what you deserve, death. Lovely. A pleasant uh, bit of dinner conversation. I wonder how that evening ended for them. Three of Job's friends then turn up uh, soon after. They've come to see him because of the tragedy that's hit. And the first thing they do, by the way, is the best thing that they do. I don't know if you work in pastoral care or chaplaincy or youth work or anything like that. But take note of this. The best thing they do is the first thing they do. They sit quietly with Job for a full week 
and say nothing. Nothing. But once they break silence, they can't shut up, right? And suddenly what's been a two-chapter book becomes a 42-chapter book, largely because of these guys. They just can't stop talking. And what's their theology? Well, in a nutshell, they still believe what Job believed at the start. They pretty much say, listen, Job, this is pretty simple, mate. Where there's suffering, there's sin. And you're suffering, so bro, put two and two together. You need to fess up, confess your sin, and God will restore you. Eliphaz, for example, puts it this way in chapter 22. He says, agree with God and be at peace. In this way, good will come to you. Receive instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you will be restored. If you remove unrighteousness from your tents. You see the implication there being that Job is hiding some sort of sinful behavior in his tents. And if he can just bring that out into the open and fess up, he'll be restored. A few verses later, he says, If you pray to him, you'll pray to him and he will hear you and you'll pay your vows. Now, that's just one example, but throughout the speeches, you'll find that Job's three friends share this simple transactional understanding of God. Do the right thing by him, and he will do the right thing by you. Job knows, though, that he's done nothing to deserve this, right? And we know that as readers because the narrator told us at the start that this guy is upright, does the right thing. And God has said that as well in the introductory chapters. So we know that Job's in the right, but it's no use arguing with these guys. They're relentless. And by the time we get to Job's final plea, which is chapters 29 to 31, it becomes clear that what Job really wants from God is not some theological explanation for suffering in the world. It's very personal. He wants to be vindicated in front of the whole community. His entire community that he lives in has drawn the wrong conclusions from his suffering. See, they've witnessed all the tragedy in his life and they've read between the lines according to that belief system that we saw in Job, Job's wife, Job's friends. And they've turned their backs on a man that they once held in high regard. How can Job possibly be a man of integrity, they say? The guy's in ruins. The guy's in ruins. And that would only happen to someone who deserves it. So when Job was healthy and wealthy, people looked up to him. This is what he says in chapters 29 to 31. But now, he says, people spit on me on the streets. The youths who used to look up to me with respect, they bully me. And one way to read Job then is to witness this inner struggle of someone who's working through suffering while surrounded by people who are stubbornly holding on to their fixed view of God. And they just won't budge. Theirs is a view of God that is is very simple, um, but it's not very helpful or accurate for Job. I like the way David Ford, a Christian theologian in the UK, puts it. He says, their counsel consists of an untraumatized wisdom. I like that phrase. It's, it's spot on, isn't it? It's an untraumatized wisdom. Because, see, some of their words are wise and some of them even contain truth. But they're untraumatized. They're inexperienced. Those words are just theoretical, theological. Um, They don't have the first clue, these guys, about what it feels like to be in Job's shoes. 
So the big question is, what is Job's way forward? I mean, he has endured almost every kind of suffering imaginable. Natural disasters, the loss of children, the renunciation of his wife, a horrid skin disease, exclusion from his community. And all through that, he has the added stress of insisting before God in prayer and trying to convince his community that he is definitely not getting what he deserves. So what's the way forward? And I know this is a big question for a lot of people, and some of you listening have been in these kinds of situations. I know you have. Well, Job's way through in a single word is, to cut to the chase, prayer. I was interested to discover when I was writing Job's way through pain that with all the speeches in Job, there's only one character who continually speaks to God. And there are no prizes for guessing who that is. It's only Job in the book of Job who speaks to God. His friends have plenty to say about God, sure, but not once do they speak directly to God. This is Job's way through pain, and it's enormously significant. You know, sometimes um, people think that going through hard times will automatically make you a better person. I don't know if you've ever come across someone like that um, who thinks that or has the impression that whether it's your suffering or theirs, that because others have struggled and they end up with a certain sort of depth to them, an extra layer of maturity or something, that suffering will automatically develop character. But suffering doesn't automatically transform you, not on its own. In fact, you may have come across people um, for whom suffering has actually made them a, a more bitter or resentful person because they've, they've not really worked through it. It's just something that they carry. The ingredient that makes the difference, that makes all the difference, is prayer. And for what it's worth, I can add my own personal experience to the record on that one. Talking to God through painful circumstances in my own life has been the thing that got me through. I don't mean having you know nice, warm cuddles with God and hot chocolate in the evenings either. I'm talking about venting. I'm talking about ranting to God getting things off your chest. And don't worry, God can handle it. <laughs> I'm talking about the kind of prayer that we see in this book, in Job. See, sometimes we, we read about Old Testament characters and we think, uh, I don't know if I'm supposed to copy them because I don't know if they're doing the right or wrong thing here. And I think I mentioned that previously, that you know sometimes Abraham does the right thing, sometimes the wrong thing, and Moses, and, and as we go through. But here, it's a little bit different. We know that Job is exemplary. How do we know that? Because the narrator, right at the start, the authoritative voice um, that's telling us the story, says Job is righteous, blameless, always turns towards God and away from evil or badness. God has said the same thing. And when we skip to the end of the book, we find that God says, I'm not happy with you three, to Job's friends, but I am happy with Job. Now, sometimes we're not sure whether we can copy the behavior of someone in the Old Testament. I think I mentioned that earlier that you get characters like Abraham or Moses. You know, sometimes they do the right thing, sometimes the wrong thing. But here in the book of Job, it's different. Job is definitely exemplary. We know that. How? Because the narrator has told us in the opening chapter, that's the authoritative storyteller, has said that Job is upright. God has said that in the opening chapters. And then at the end of the book, too, God says to the friends, hey, I'm not really happy with the way you've spoken. You've made me angry. But the way Job's spoken 
has been right. So we know that Job's behavior, behavior and his way of praying is exemplary, even though he really vents. He really lets God have it. See, the, the other thing to note here is that Job never once questions God's existence. He never says, I can't believe in a God who would dot, 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 allow all these things to happen to me. No, Job trusts. He continues to press into God, even though he doesn't understand his circumstances. So he asks all the tough questions. In, in chapter 7, verse 20, he says to God, why have you made me your target? In chapter 10, verse 2, he says, tell me, on what grounds do you charge me? And a few verses later, he says, are you returning me to dust? That's verses 8 and 9. And that's a reference to Genesis 2, where God creates a human being from the dust. And here Job is saying, are you unmaking me? In chapter 13, Job says, why do you hide your face and regard me as your enemy? 13.24. You see, Job's prayers have come a long way from where they were in chapter 1, haven't they? He began with, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. <laughs> but my point is, even as Job gets warmed up, and I mean warmed up, like angry, he continues to pray. Of course he's angry. He has a right to feel like a victim. But he continues to speak throughout all of that to God. And don't forget, the accuser's words back at the beginning were about how Job would speak in relation to God. So for the sake of time, let's skip through to the end of the book now before we run out of time and just have a look at how God responds to all of this. By the way, I, I would love to spend more time talking about God's response in chapters 38 to 42, but if you want that good stuff, you're just going to have to come to Trinity and take a course. <laughs> so check this out. After God has made his uh, less than straightforward response, shall we say, in chapters 38 to 42, God has a little chat with Job's friends, and this is what he has to say. He says to Eliphaz, who must be the, the leader of the pack, I guess, My wrath is kindled against you, my anger is kindled against you, and against your two friends, for you have not spoken to me rightly, as my servant Job has. You see, the issue comes back to speech, and what Job has done rightly that the friends haven't is that he has spoken to God. Now, you'll probably struggle to find a translation that says, you've not spoken to me rightly. But let me just um, refer to the Hebrew briefly here. 150 times in the Old Testament, we get this verb, speaking, followed by the preposition to, and followed by a personal pronoun, you know, to me, to you, to him, to her. And in 149 out of the 150 instances, the preposition in the middle means to, spoken to someone. This is the only time that it's translated spoken of me. And I don't understand why translators do that, because it makes perfect sense to say, you have not spoken to me. As I said earlier, the friends never speak to God, not once throughout the book, but Job does throughout. So it makes perfect sense that God would say to Eliphaz, I'm mad at you guys because you've not spoken to me rightly, as my servant Job has. See, the friends have been those presumptuous people who talk all about God and speak for God, but without speaking to him. I don't know if you know anyone like that. 
you know, oh, hey, look, I just want to tell you, God wouldn't want this. God doesn't want you to do that. God doesn't behave like this. God doesn't behave like that. It's just not who he is. If you've got friends who are always busy telling you what God thinks and how God behaves, but they don't pray together with you, then, you know, just shut the door. (laughs) Now, where does this leave us? Well, there is so much more to say about how Job has been changed by all this. But as we finish up on this theme of crisis, let let me just stick with this main point about prayer. Because what's especially important about Job's ongoing conversations with God, whether in defiance or submission, and we certainly see a bit of both, is that Job is changed in the end. The story does not circle back to where it started. Unfortunately, a lot of people think that way. Because Job receives a double portion of everything at the end, uh, I think a lot of readers assume that that means he's just back where he started. But he's not. Of course he's not. How could you be after an experience like this? When Job makes his final and feeble responses to God near the end of the book, he, he says things like, Look, I am so small. That's chapter 40, verse 4. He just recognises He is this tiny, tiny speck in the cosmos. And then in verse 42, verse 5, he he says, As a report to the ear, I had heard of you, he's talking to God, but now my eye sees you. He's had a personal experience, a personal revelation of God. Things have changed, for sure. And there's a whole bunch of things that we could talk about Uh, little details in the text at the end that show how he's changed, but I haven't got time here. So let me just finish by reading a couple of paragraphs from the end of my book on Job. The practical implications of all this are quite clear. We can't afford to stop communicating with God when life treats us unfairly. If our experiences of pain and injustice are to be transformative, then we must not give up on prayer. Even when, like Job, we begin to wonder, whether anyone is really listening. What's more, as the book of Job suggests, there are no guarantees that God will ever answer as we hope or expect. God's answer from the whirlwind is neither logical nor reassuring. Rather, God decenters Job and makes him feel small. In answer to Paul's plea in the New Testament that the thorn in his flesh be removed, God answers no. To Jesus' prayer, In the Garden of Gethsemane, when he prays, let this cup pass from me, God answers, no. You may never find a satisfactory, logical explanation for the suffering or the injustice that you are enduring. But if you persist in his presence, the personal transformation that results from your encounter with the living God will undoubtedly be a better answer than the one you went looking for. A question for you to think on. When times are tough, do you find it easier or harder to pray? And maybe more importantly, why do you think that is? When times are tough, do you find it easier or harder to pray? And why do you think that is? See ya. This podcast was brought to you by Trinity College Queensland. Honest answers to tough questions. Visit trinity.qld.edu.au to learn more.